A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tortoise. It's 7.36 a.m. on Saturday, the 11th of February this year. A Wizz Air flight from Vienna has landed at Gatwick. Magomed Hussein Doftayev is on board. He's a 30-year-old bearded man in a grey sweatshirt and tracksuit bottoms. An IT technician. He lives with his wife, a trainee nurse, and their three children in Graz, Austria. He's travelling on an Austrian passport. It's his first ever visit to Britain. He takes a taxi straight from Gatwick to Chiswick Park. It takes him just over an hour to get to the West London Business Park. He claims that he had arranged to meet a friend there, Otman, someone he knew from his native Chechnya. When he arrives, Dovtayev puts on a baseball cap and a face mask. He walks towards Building 12, home to the London offices of Disney and the private American University. And then he walks towards Building 11, home of Iran International, a TV channel whose coverage of the Iranian government is highly critical. Dovtayev walks around with his phone held up, as if he's recording a video or taking a photo. His focus is on Building 11. It's surrounded by steel fences and concrete barriers, which the British government put up three months earlier, when counter-terrorism officers from the Metropolitan Police warned two of its journalists of imminent and credible threats to their lives from the Iranian government. Dovtayev is soon spotted by security guards. He realises he's being observed and retreats to a nearby Starbucks. Within minutes, the place is swarming with counter-terrorism officers. Before he is arrested, Dovtayev deletes photos of the Iran International Building but his phone still contains seven videos filming the outside of Building 11, as well as security arrangements. It also reveals that he had called two phone numbers, one Turkish and the other Russian. The police officers take Dovtayev to nearby Hammersmith police station. Three days later, he appears in Westminster Magistrates Court, charged with the possession of information useful for an act of terrorism. I'm Paul Caruana Galizia, and this is episode two of Iran's Hit Squads. The Dovtayev case is unusual. It gives us an exceptionally rare glimpse at an actual plot. The taxi straight from Gatwick Airport to Iran International in Chiswick the face mask and baseball cap, 
the filming in full view of security guards. But more than anything, the case is unusual because it's going to trial. In the last episode, I said I wanted to find out who the individuals behind these threats are. I wondered if the Doftayev case could at least give us a glimpse. And if there have been so many Iranian plots, I wondered where all the other prosecutions were. I found only one other prosecution of an alleged terrorist act apparently related to Iran since the 1979 Islamic Revolution. This case was the first time attacks from Iran entered the public consciousness in the UK. In December 1989, a 33-year-old engineering student from Iran, Merdad Kokabi, was arrested in Manchester under the Prevention of Terrorism Act, a law that gave police the right to hold people for a week without charge. At the time, Iran often used students on UK visas to conduct its operations. The Home Office said it was going to deport Merdad Kokabi for reasons of national security. It didn't elaborate. But Merdad Kokabi's lawyer told Iran's official news agency that his client was suspected of plotting to assassinate the writer Salman Rushdie over the satanic verses. At this point, the public was able to put a face to a plot. It was a fairly routine day. There was... Um, lots of news coming in all the time. Mick Smith worked for BBC Monitoring, which broke the news. The BBC Monitoring Service monitored radio stations from around the world. An Iranian monitor rushes in and he's very agitated. You could see that. He rushed over to me. He gave me this piece of paper, which is transcribing the bulletin. And I said, hold on, hold on. What the fuck's a fatwa? Merdad Kokabi was charged with conspiracy to cause explosions and with an arson attack on a London bookshop that stocked Salman Rushdie's book. At his trial in March 1991, the prosecution alleged that his fingerprints had been found on two pipe bombs and that he had used his credit card to hire cars used in the attacks. But two months into the court proceedings, Merdad Kokabi was released from his charges and deported to Iran, where he was given a hero's welcome and a government job, selecting students for overseas placements. The Tehran Times reported the news and speculated that Roger Cooper, a British citizen held in Evan prison for five years on spying charges, could be released imminently. Good evening, the headlines at six o'clock. Roger Cooper is back home in Britain after five years and four months in an Iranian jail. The Foreign Office refused to publicly link the two cases. Roger Cooper, who used to write speeches for the Shah, was back home on 2nd April 1991, just 20 days after Merdad Kokabi was released. Merdad Kokabi's case shows us how consular cases take priority over criminal ones. The British government tends to feel it's more important to bring one of its citizens home, then prosecute an Iranian operative. And Merdad Kokabi's case shows us something else. He wasn't prosecuted for plotting to assassinate Salman Rushdie. He was prosecuted for the firebombing. The assassination plot was intercepted based on intelligence. There was no evidence, like his fingerprints on pipe bombs 
that would meet the standard of a criminal court. But sometimes, collecting intelligence is just more useful than a prosecution. Sometimes, keeping the plotters in the shadows can be beneficial. I'm fine, Matthew, don't worry about me. Thank you, though. I wanted to understand why the authorities don't always push to convert intelligence, like tips they receive, into evidence that can be used in court. Why, in other words, Dovtaev's case is so unusual. Matthew, could I first get you to introduce yourself? My name is Matthew I wanted to speak to an insider, someone who knows how these plots unfold firsthand. So nice of you to, to invite us into your home and, and unplug your fridge and cut your neighbor's wind chimes. <laughs> this I found in an unexpected location. In the sleepy Shakespearean town of Stratford-upon-Avon, I met with a former MI6 officer who worked on Iran. Matthew Dunn sat across from me in a flat usually used by actors working in the local theatre as we set up our microphone. Bringing a plot into the courtroom is great as a spectacle and as a form of closure, if you like. But intelligence officers work somewhat differently in that respect and have a somewhat different perspective. What are the possible reasons for that gap, I suppose, between intercepted plots and criminal cases or prosecutions? The reason for those gaps is, is, is one point may, may simply be that um, perhaps we've discovered the early stages of the plots but then lost track of what was happening. So, in other words, we failed to actually bring this to justice. The other more overriding reason, in my view, is that what we want to do is keep things live for as long as possible, because actually what we want to do is monitor the whole network, who's giving them the orders, who's supplying the munitions or whatever, documentation, so that the end game being is that we really have our hooks into it and we can stop subsequent plots that could potentially be of an even bigger nature. So we really want to take that angle and desperately don't want it to get into the public eye. Some of the plots that haven't been brought to prosecution, I would strongly suggest, are those precisely of that nature. Whatever the precise reason to keep Iranian plots in the shadows, the British picture remains opaque. It's very different in the United States. We can see much more clearly who's behind these threats there because its laws around state secrets are less restrictive than Britain's, and its laws around freedom of the press are more robust. The UK Official Secrets Act is far-reaching, covering all government bodies, both current and former officials, and, in some parts, even members of the general public. But even so, the story ends in the same way. Right after the revolution, it was very, very dangerous for political activists to be there. We had many executions and also in our family. And we fled the country. We moved to Germany, and that's where we grew up. My father was born in Iran. This is Gazelle Sharmad. She lives in California. Her father, Jamshib Sharmad, is an Iranian dissident. 
When he was 50 years old, he moved to um, California and we all followed him afterward. And we have a really big Iranian diaspora here in Los Angeles. Gazelle's father started a TV station. The station is called Tondar. It's devoted to overthrowing the Iranian government, which calls it a terrorist group. That was in 2006. The server of the website got under under attack by the Islamic regime. So uh, his identity got exposed. So the threats against him became stronger and stronger. In 2007, they broke into his office. They published a propaganda video against him on national TV in Iran, portraying him as enemy number one of the Islamic Republic, saying that he's a terrorist, that he supports terrorist groups. He was still aware that he continuously was a threat and he was told not to leave the country because the protection that the U.S. government can provide was only within its borders. And my dad did not leave the country for many years until 2020. In 2020, he took a flight to go to Mumbai to get new contracts and come back. And uh, that's when they were able to kidnap him, unfortunately. But it, it didn't happen in Mumbai, right? No. When my dad flew to Mumbai, that was early March 2020. The pandemic hit and uh, countries started to shut down. Gazelle's father was stuck. The only route home was via stopover in Dubai. Of course, my mom freaked out. Dubai is very close to Iran and it is a very unsafe location for activists. He tried to calm her down, tell her, I'm just waiting for my flight. I'm just in my hotel room. You can see me on my Google tracker. He opened up his Google tracker where she could see his location. And he was even joking, going to the lobby and thinking, seeing me here. And it, it kind of calmed her down. Um, that was unfortunately the last time she was able to see him free in his hotel room. After that, all communication broke off for three days. And after three days, during those three days, she could see on the Google tracker that he was moving, his location was moving, but not towards Mumbai, where he was supposed to go, but towards Oman and then crossing the border of Oman, going to the coast. And that's where the tracker stopped. The very next day, August 1st, is when we got woken up by family members telling us to watch the news. There was a video by the Islamic regime of my dad. He was blindfolded. He had the swollen face. He was forced to confession to crimes that he did not commit. And th that's the moment where we found out the Islamic regime kidnapped my dad and they have him. And we did not know if he was alive, if he's a prisoner, or if they executed him because they tried to assassinate him so many times. That's when we realized what was even happening. Jamshid Sharmad has been held in solitary confinement since then, brought out only to be accused in a Tehran courtroom of being a Western spy and charged with an offense usually reserved for dissidents. The charge was corruption on earth. Like nobody has ever heard about this. Pretty much a ticket to, to a death sentence. It means you have not committed any crimes. We cannot charge you for a murder or for something because we need evidence for these things. But we will charge you with this. And uh, it means you have spoken out or even thought about criticizing the regime. And they don't need evidence for that. And they can assassinate you uh, through an execution. Since Gazelle Sharmad and I spoke, her father has been sentenced to death. It's unclear whether the sentence has actually been carried out. But Iran has been determined to kill Jamshid Sharmad for years. In 2009, they sent a regime agent to the United States, to our house, to assassinate my father. And 
thankfully that was spoiled by the local authorities and by the FBI. The agent confessed uh, that he was an agent, that he was um, trying to target my dad and other activists at the same time. A decade before Gazelle's father's kidnap, there was an attempt on his life. We've spoken about London being a dark city in the middle of the night, but the Los Angeles suburb of Glendora, all quiet streets and sunny skies, was the setting for this assassination plot. On a late summer day in 2009, a would-be hitman got cold feet and called the local police from a service station. He had spent the preceding four days in a low-budget motel with an Iranian man, scheming how to kill another Glendora resident. He told the police they had first planned on shooting Jamshid Sharmad, but then felt buying a gun would be too risky. So, they decided to run him over with a van from a used car dealer. The nervous hitman offered the police proof. The purchase of the van that had been paid $5,000 for the job with another $27,000 delivered to his mother back in Iran. The police found the man in an airport hotel under his own name, Mohammed Reza Sardeknia. They arrested Mohammed Reza Sardeknia in his room where they found a stack of new $100 bills wrapped in paper with Farsi words written all over it. He pleaded guilty to solicitation of murder and was jailed. A few months after Sardeknia was jailed, the US allowed him to visit his dying father in Iran on condition that he'd return. He never did. Within weeks of his arrival, Tehran released a US citizen from Evan prison. The US is more likely to prosecute Iranian operatives than the UK. But even a conviction doesn't close the case. Sardeknia, the middleman who targeted Jamshid Sharmad in 2009, was also plotting against a prominent Iranian dissident in London. Ali Reza Nurizadeh. They met several times in London. Nurizadeh became suspicious when Mohammed Reza Sardeknia insisted on taking large numbers of photos, including shots of his car and garage. His suspicions were confirmed when counter-terrorism police officers visited him to warn him about Sardeknia. The FBI had found surveillance footage of both Jamshid Sharmad and Ali Reza Nurizadeh on Mohammed Reza Sardeknia when he was detained in California. The FBI authorized UK authorities to share the threat information with Ali Reza Nurizadeh. One middleman working with hitmen in two locations, both commissioned by the same boss. I found who that boss was by trawling through a massive leak of diplomatic cables. I read that Mohammed Reza Sardeknia, the middleman, worked for Iranian intelligence and that dozens of photos of Ali Reza Nurizadeh had landed on the desk of Iran's Deputy Minister of Intelligence. Iran's Ministry of Intelligence eventually claimed responsibility for Jamshid Sharmat's abduction three years later. They described it as one of many complex operations in striking dissidents. 
Iran's Ministry of Intelligence concentrates on monitoring and assassinating dissidents both inside and outside Iran. It has operated in the UK. It called Iran International in Chizik a terrorist organization and said it will pursue the TV channels, operatives and affiliates. The Ministry of Intelligence has a preferred means of operation. To be one removed from the actual final act, that final act being perhaps assassination or um, sabotage, kidnapping, whatever it is. Um, if anything, in layman's terms, they subcontract. Who do they, what kind of people are we talking about? It's almost like a, a criminal network, really. They, they will use whatever they can at their disposal so they could actually tap into... Um, Certainly, they can tap into um, Iranians who are operating overseas. They can tap into other jihadist cells. They can also tap into criminal underworld. They'll use whatever's at their disposal, but for the actual dirty work, they'll obviously use people that are very willing to do that and capable. I imagine it makes it harder to police domestically because the, the people are likely already here, say, or... Or at least it would be harder to establish a link back to Iran. Some prosecutors do manage. And sometimes those links are in unexpected places. These charges arise out of an ongoing investigation into the government of Iran's efforts to assassinate on U.S. soil a journalist, author and human rights activist who is a U.S. citizen of Iranian origin. This is the Attorney General of the United States, Merrick Garland, speaking at a Department of Justice press conference in January. All three defendants are currently in custody. In July of last year, one of the defendants, Khalid Mediev, was found with an assault rifle, two ammunition magazines, and approximately 66 rounds of ammunition not far from the victim's home in Brooklyn, New York. He was arrested by NYPD officers and charged with a federal firearms offense. As detailed in the superseding indictment unsealed today, Mediev was not acting alone. We allege that Mediev and his co-conspirators, Polad Omarov and Rafat Amarov, are members of an Eastern European criminal organization with ties to Iran. As alleged in the indictment, the government Iran has previously targeted dissidents around the world, including the victim, who opposed the regime's violations of human rights. And as outlined in this and prior indictments, the victim in this case has long been a target of the Iranian government. In 2021, we charged an Iranian intelligence officer and three Iranian intelligence assets with plotting to kidnap the victim from within the United States for rendition to Iran and likely execution in order to silence the victim. The government of Iran has continued to target the victim since then. The Eastern European criminal organization is Thieves in Law, an organized crime group with roots in the Soviet Union. It really formed under Stalin. His gulags overflowed with political prisoners and criminals so they developed a society to organize themselves. One that operated under their own law. Stalin moved prisoners around his gulags to break up the groups they contained. By doing so, 
He planted thieves in law groups across the Soviet republics. And when the Soviet republics collapsed, thieves in law persisted and spread further afield, even into Western Europe. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on bluenile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands. All hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Magomed Hussein Dovtayev, the Austrian of Chechen origin, is charged with a terrorism offense accused of spying on Iran International in Chiswick, the man we met at the start of this episode. He's been in custody since February. He has pleaded not guilty. He appeared by video link from Wandsworth Prison for a court date that I attended at the Old Bailey on the 3rd of March. He will face a full trial in December. I understand that the criminal proxies Iran uses have operated in the UK, and that although firearms laws are much stricter in Britain than the US, some of the intercepted plots have involved guns and the lure and kidnap model used in the Masih Alinejad plots in New York. I know from my own reporting on this story that counter-terrorism police and MI5 want to be more like the US, more open about their work countering the threat from Iran, to do the operational response and provide protective security, as well as raise the cost for the Iranian state by calling it out, to expose its agents and their methods. It seems important to me that they do 
Some of the plots they've intercepted have involved improvised explosives. And it's not just Iranian students or Glendora hitmen that Iran uses. In the next episode of Iran's Hit Squads, as an intelligence officer myself, I might consider actually, is there a, a third party, another organization or another entity that I might be able to use? What is somewhat unusual about the Iranian experience is that it seems to be almost overwhelmingly their modus operandi, as opposed to just one aspect of it. Thanks for listening. New episodes will be released every Tuesday. You can get early access to each episode and ad-free listening by subscribing to Tortoise Plus on Apple Podcasts or joining Tortoise as a member, where you can access more of our reporting, live events, and support our work for just £60. Just visit tortoisemedia.com slash hitsquads for this exclusive offer. If you enjoyed this series, we would really appreciate you rating it on the app and leaving a review. Your ratings and reviews help us at Tortoise to continue our in-depth reporting. This series is written and reported by me, Paul Carana Galizia. It's produced by Joanna Humphreys. The sound design and original theme is by Tom Kinsella. Artwork is by John Hill. The editor is Jasper Corbett. news is where we make sense of the world and over the next few weeks it's the home of tortoise's election coverage between now and polling day you'll get special live episodes of the news meeting from across the country john curtis and rachel wolf will discuss the latest polling and policies in trendy and tortoise's alexi mostris and patricia clark have a brand new show called could it be true where they'll examine questionable claims from the campaign trail so to make sense of the uk election Follow Tortoise News wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com <laughs>